0: Chapter 1. As you know, we've been in Colossians chapter 1, and I want to read verses 28 and 29 of Colossians 1. So if you're able to stand with me for the reading of God's Word, please do so at this time. Colossians chapter 1, verses 28 and 29. This is God's Word. We proclaim Christ, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to His power, which mightily works within me. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word. You may be seated. Well, as you know, we've been working through this summer series titled, A Mission-Focused Church. And I hope and pray that a number of things have happened and taken place in your heart as they've taken place in my own heart. And one of those has been Just being reminded as a follower of Christ that mission is not something that happens out there, brethren, in some foreign country, although certainly that's global missions. And we're even going to have a team going to Fiji very soon in a couple of weeks or so to a foreign country where there are brethren already. And that's certainly part of our mission, global missions. But missions is something that happens here where we are, here where we live. Here where the Lord has you working a job. Here where the Lord has you living in a particular neighborhood. Here where our church building finds itself in the middle of Kent in the region of the Pacific Northwest. Missions is here. We are missionaries wherever we may live. I hope that that, that the Lord has impressed that upon you all the more. That missions isn't just out there. It's us fleshing out our role as missionaries here in this particular region where we live. The Apostle Paul understood this. He was a man who, upon having a collision with the Lord Jesus, upon His conversion, in the aftermath of that encounter with Jesus, he was a man on mission. He was resolute on what Jesus had called him to do, which was be about the Great Commission. And this is our story as well. We have not just been saved, from the penalty of our sin. We've been saved from the, the power of sin over our lives. And one day we will be saved from the presence of sin when we stand face to face with God in Christ. But while we are here, we are to be missionaries. We are on mission. We have been saved to make disciples. To see the church of Jesus Christ built as we see people come to know Christ and come to love Christ and come to serve Christ. Christ. Fulfilling this mission is why it's important to foster then the type of atmosphere, the type of culture, the type of environment that we've been talking about here in our church, a culture, an environment here in the context of the church where people can grow spiritually. The church is to be a, a hub where people can mutually grow and mutually care for one another and mutually invest into one another at a high level. The church is to cultivate the type of culture where Christians can thrive and not just survive. That's what we want to see Eastridge become all the more. We are to be a church that is about a discipleship culture. And remember the working definition that I've given you. Discipleship is the ongoing process of cultivating relationships, intentional relationships, for the purpose of growth in Christ in the context of a commitment to a local church it is highly relational the goal is to move people towards Christ likeness including ourselves and it is in the context of a commitment to a local church that is discipleship and we've been working and unpacking those aspects in the flow of our messages and so it's this culture of discipleship then that we've been considering the past few weeks and that we want to be all the more about brethren as the Spirit of God grows us and matures us, not only as individuals, but as a church. And we've asked the question, what does it look like for a church to foster a culture of discipleship? To cultivate a, an atmosphere and an environment where people can thrive and not just survive. And if you've been taking notes, we've seen from Colossians chapter 1, verses 28-29, to 29, that a discipleship culture is, first of all, a Christ-centered culture. That's for your outline point number one. It's a Christ-centered culture. Right? Paul says we proclaim Christ. It's about, Ministry is about exalting Jesus. In a discipleship culture, Christ is, is always to be on display. And our relationship with Christ has implications for how we do evangelism. We are challenging people lovingly and in gentleness about their relationship with God through Jesus Christ. If we, are to be, if we are Christ-centered and gospel-driven. This also has implications for how we edify and build up one another. We're always looking to move people towards Christ-likeness. And so the ultimate end in everything that we do in our personal ministries and as a church is to make much of Christ. It's to exalt Christ. A discipleship culture is a Christ-centered culture. Secondly, a discipleship culture is also a word-driven culture. That's point number two. A word-driven culture. We saw this last week as well. That Christ leads His church primarily through His Word. The Word of God is to permeate everything that we do in our personal lives and in the life of the church. The Word of God, a word-driven culture, is one where we are concerned with not just head knowledge of the Word, but also with the application of the Word of God. As that Word takes root in our hearts and our affections are moved towards action. That's what it means to be a Word-driven church. Far too many Christians in the church are only concerned with knowledge of the Word. Knowledge is where it begins, but that's not where it ends. Knowledge of the Word is not an end in itself. We grow in knowledge of the Word so that it leads to the change in our lives. So that we're moved to action as the Spirit of God works through the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We want to see change. Change in the way that we think about God. Change in the way that we relate to others and we treat others and we forgive others and we seek forgiveness from others. Change in the way that we love the church and are committed to the church. Those who love Christ love what Christ loves and Christ loves His church. He died for her. And so change means that we love His church. The Word of God is also to lead to change in the way that we view the, the, the world. That we look at people with, upon people with compassion. Yes, with zeal and self-righteous indignation when God's name is being, is being uh, ridiculed. But we want to see people come to know Christ. There should be change in our hearts as we hear about the Great Commission and be all the more driven to do evangelism. And so being word-driven, brethren, means applying the word so that it shapes and molds everything that we do personally and collectively as God's people. We don't have a mission then that we should be confused about. We have the blueprint for Christ-centered, word-driven ministry. Discipleship culture is a word-driven culture. Now this morning, we want to consider the last two of these aspects of a Discipleship culture. And so, thirdly, we want to consider today that a discipleship culture is, ready, a people oriented culture. That's point number three on your outline. A discipleship culture is a people oriented culture. On the vertical level, as you think about ministry, ministry is done always and supremely for God and for the glory of God. But then this finds expression, fleshes itself out on the horizontal level where ministry comes down to ministry to to people. In fact, ministry is people. Without people, there really wouldn't be any ministry, right? I think oftentimes we forget this. If we're not careful, ministry can become about much busy work running around doing many, many different things, all the while overlooking people, all the while forgetting why we're doing what we are doing. And so as you think about life in the church, we must always be looking to be people-oriented individuals. I want you to see this. Note in our text that Paul uses a, a beautiful little qualifying phrase in verse 28 of Colossians 1. Are you there? Colossians chapter 1, verse 28. Notice what he says. We proclaim Christ admonishing every man, and teaching every man, and here it is, with or in all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. You see that preposition phrase there? In or, in or with all wisdom? In other words, the manner of our speaking the truth to one another is to be done in or with all wisdom. Very important loaded phrase there. What is wisdom but the ability to take truth and skillfully apply it to one's life in a way that glorifies God and even benefits others? That's wisdom. Wisdom is knowledge rightly applied. Wisdom is skillful, godly living. That's wisdom. But now think with me for a minute. If you're going to flesh out admonishing and teaching one another and do so in all wisdom this requires two primary things from each of us first this requires that you know the word that you be a student of the word of God remember we saw this from Colossians 3 16 that we are to be people who are allowing the word of Christ to dwell in us richly that the word of God is to make its home in our hearts it shouldn't just visit be passing through but we should be word saturated individuals And so if we're going to be teaching and admonishing one another and do so in all wisdom, it will require that we know the Word. That's where it begins. Wisdom comes from God's Word. And so you must know the Word, be pursuing Christ yourself and His Word, but be also applying the Word to your life if you're going to be positioned to say anything meaningful and of substance to anyone else that will be of spiritual benefit. You must know the Word yourself if you're going to be helpful to others. But often we leave it there. We leave it there. We forget that B, admonishing and teaching with or in all wisdom also requires that we strive to know people, brethren. That we strive to know people. That we be not only stewards, uh, uh, students of the Word, but that we also are students of people. This requires that we be people people. We need to learn to be people people. he said, but people are messy. Yeah, so are you. But people are have baggage. Yep, so do I. But people are complicated. Yeah, so are you. You've heard of the old saying, ministry would be easy if it weren't for people, right? <laughs> ministry would be easy if it weren't for people. I don't agree with the statements negativity and pessimism, but I do agree with the fact that ministry comes down to serving people. And this means that ministry is is and has been and will forever be difficult, brethren. It will be hard. It will often be messy. No one understood this more than our Lord Jesus, right? No one did. And yet, our Savior came to reach people who were unlovable, who were unattractive, who were unpolished like us, who were running the opposite direction, not seeking him. Christ understood this more than anyone else. And so speaking the truth to one another with or in all wisdom requires that we strive to be highly relational individuals, that we be personable, that we take a personal interest in people, right? I'm sure that you would agree that the best kinds of of doctors are doctors who take a personal interest in you, aren't they? You ever met a doctor that doesn't even ask any questions? You walk in and you have symptoms and things hurt and all of that, and and after 30 seconds, pretty much you're done, right? Maybe that's a little exaggeration. Maybe a couple of minutes into it, he's done. No personal interest. But the good doctors are those who sit down, right, on the stool, ask you questions, listen well, try to understand the symptoms that you have so that they might be able to rightly triage you and be able to give you what you need, give you the right solution to your problem. Brethren, we need to do the same thing in the church. We need to be people people. People who seek to know others. If we're going to diagnose issues in someone else's life and vice versa in the right way, in a fruitful manner, right? We need to get to know one another on a deeper level. We need to position ourselves. As I just said in doing the announcements, positioning yourself to be able to be invested into and to invest into others because it requires time and presence and conversation for us to get to know one another. It requires sacrifice. Now, this is not to say that in order for you to come alongside of another person with the truth that you must always have a relationship with them, otherwise you have no right to say anything to them. Far from it. That's not what I'm saying here. I've known folks who've pulled that card on me. You know, you hardly know me, so you got nothing to say to me. You know what? That attitude reveals more of their heart than anything else. People can talk that way when they just, they just don't want to hear it from God's Word. They don't want to hear the truth, even if it's done in love. So that's not what I mean. What I am saying is that the norm, the pattern that we should strive for should be relationally based ministry. And we should be people people. You say, what's the theological basis for this, Pastor Kempis? How about the nature of God? How about the nature of God? We serve a tri-personal God, don't we? A tri-personal God. In fact, the, the very titles of the first and second members of the Trinity, of the Godhead, Father and Son, are real titles which point to how the Father and the Son ready, relate to one another. There is a relationship there. We have a tri-personal God. Furthermore, think about this. As God's creatures, we were made in God's image. And part and parcel of what that means is that we are creatures made for relationship. Just think about your salvation. The fundamental problem that was solved when you came to know Christ, when God saved you, was the relational drift between you and God. You put your faith in Jesus, you turn from your sins, and you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, recognizing that salvation only comes through faith in Christ, and you went from enemy of God to now friend and child of God. There was a relational problem that was solved in salvation. Your sin was removed, paid for, and now you are in right relationship with God, which was His design from the beginning, right? And Jesus came to make that possible. We were made for relationship. You know, one of the results of the fall is that we tend to run from relationships on the human level. It shouldn't be normal for us to do that. Our sin, our self-centeredness, our sinful fears and anxieties, our sinful baggage causes us to run away from relationships on the human level. And so we have to fight really, really hard to make sure that we are people people. But when we're reconciled to God, we begin to mature and grow in Christ, we begin to run towards those relationships with others. Right? We fight for these, even if they are messy. Even if they are difficult. Even if they're often painful because of our sin. We run towards those now as redeemed individuals because we know that the Christian life is not one to be lived in isolation, but in community. None of us can be an island and be able to thrive spiritually speaking. We need other people around us, the right kinds of people who are investing into us. And we need to open our lives up to others so that others would invest into us and we would become who God wants us to be in Christ. And so the norm in a discipleship culture, brethren, is that there is a growing people-oriented atmosphere among us. We fight for this by the power of the Spirit of God, by the grace of God. And in this type of discipleship culture two commitments are always working in harmony with one another. We are growing in the knowledge of the word of God and we are growing in the knowledge of one another. Fostering and cultivating relationships with one another even when it's painful, even when it's hard. We should keep this in mind as we serve in the church as well. That as you serve, we should be getting to know one another as we serve side by side, shoulder to shoulder with one another. There should be relationship being cultivated mutual care mutual burden bearing should be happening as we are on the front line serving God's people we should get to know one another not just ignore one another you know I've had a have had a number of similar meetings like the following over the years but I'll never forget the one time I met with a, a brother in Christ for for breakfast just to get to know him years ago this brother struck me because he was involved so much in the church doing a lot of different things. And right off the bat, we met at Denny's and I remember asking him at the beginning after some small talk, brother, tell me a little bit about yourself. How did you come to know Christ? Tell me whatever is on your heart to share. What do you want to share? And all of a sudden, the brother actually welled up with tears and he began to cry. And I thought, man, did I say something to offend him? So I asked him and he says, brother, you didn't say anything to offend me. I just want to tell you that in all the years I've been here, no one's ever asked that question of me. And you're the first person who actually asked me out to go have breakfast together. He had been at the church for four or five years, serving in high capacities, very self-sacrificial individual. That's why I wanted to meet with him because it struck me how servant-minded he was. No one had ever really asked him that question. No one had asked him uh, meaningful questions that would lead to a relationship. He didn't feel like he had anyone he could even talk to even though he served so much. You know how many people I've met over the years like this. And it's always an example to me of how we can miss the point in the church. We can miss the point. It's possible, brethren, for someone to serve a lot and not have any meaningful relationships in the church that are mutually edifying. It's very possible. It's also possible for someone not to serve at all and for you to neglect people altogether, forgetting that God has saved you so that you would serve others, so that you would give your life for others. Both both of those are sad distortions of what God wants from us. People or ministry is people in relationship with one another serving alongside of one another. That's what ministry is all about. I also want you to notice that where there exists a people-oriented culture here, we'll also be committed to reaching out to others and to assimilation. I want you to see this. We will work hard to get people plugged in so that no one is left behind. So that no one is left behind. Look at verse 28 in our text. We proclaim Christ, admonishing, ready for this, every man or person, and teaching every man or person with all wisdom, so that we may present every man or person complete in Christ. Like good exegetes, right? What does repetition uh, signify in our text? Emphasis, right? Repetition is for emphasis. Three times, every man every, or every person or every woman, every man, every man, every man, every man. Paul doesn't want us to miss the point, brethren. Our goal and purpose is that no one is left behind in the church, That we are so people oriented that we are always looking to get people plugged into the life of the church. It's not just about us for no more, it's about opening up our sanctified cliques, if you will, so that others are welcome to be part of those relationships. We're always multiplying, we're always reproducing if we are people oriented. We strive so that every member be engaged in discipleship. We don't exclude or discriminate against anyone in the church. Each of us may be wired differently. right? We may have our unique makeup as far as personality goes, neutral likes or dislikes, backgrounds that are different, life experiences baggage that we have. Our social brackets, financial brackets may be different. Our ethnicities may be different. Our color of skin may be different. Even our Christian journey leading to this time, it might be unique, very different than somebody else. But these differences should be celebrated in the church. These differences should be leveraged in the church for greater connectivity, they should lead to a a heartfelt acceptance and relational disposition towards one another as believers in Christ because that is our greatest identity marker, isn't it? We are in Christ and therefore in fellowship with one another as Christians. There's a wonderful inseparable bond that we have as believers that can never be broken if you're truly in Christ. This wonderful connection should lead us to having a heart of outreach toward all, an open heart toward all. This will look different for each of us. How you express friendship and openness and accessibility to your life may be very different than the way that I do it or somebody else else does it. How you love people and serve people might look very different than the way that somebody else does it. But both of us, both sides are called to show love to others. Each of us should have a heart of outreach, brethren, in a people-oriented atmosphere. We should have wide open hearts towards others. We should display an approachable disposition toward people. There's this thing that people keep talking about here in the Seattle area called the, the Seattle Freeze. Ever heard of that? Yeah? How many of you have heard of that? Come on, some of you are lying right now. The Seattle Freeze. Trying to understand it? Right? I'm trying to be a student of the Pacific Northwest and I'm asking a lot of you a lot of questions as you guys help me understand it and I'm reading some things because I want to understand my mission field. Right? But I think what people mean is that in this area, people tend, with exceptions, to be somewhat cold, standoffish, prickly, easily annoyed, snappy pants with one another. You know? Listen, in the church... There is no such thing as the Seattle freeze. If you're a Christian. If you're not a Christian, then you don't care about what I'm saying. And you're going to continue to be cold and indifferent and prickly. But if you're a believer, there's no such thing as the Seattle freeze. In the church. In the church, there is the Christian heat. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) The Christian warmth. How about that? The Christian warmth. As Christians were instructed in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 8, to keep fervent in our love for one another. Fervent has the idea of unwavering earnestness in our love for one another. That's some hot love happening right there, right? In the pure kind of sense. In the context of the local church. It's Seattle free stuff. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. We are to be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly or sisterly, kind-hearted and humble in spirit. That, my brethren, right there is Christian warmth. There's no Seattle freeze if you're a Christian. Listen to me. There should be no person among us making it a pattern to walk around as if you're sucking on a lemon. You know what I'm saying? Bitter, cold. Indifferent, prickly, standoffish. Maybe part of the reason why people don't come up to you is because that's how you come across. Have you ever thought about that? I'm not saying that excuses it. I'm not saying that justifies it. But how about working on your disposition genuinely from the heart so that you're approachable? Right? So that people come alongside of you and they're not, they don't feel like they're, it's, you're like a wet blanket over them. We're called to be like Christ, brethren, not carnal. Like Christ, our precious Savior was the ultimate people, person. Remember, even the little ones could not stay away from him. Remember that? And the disciples are like, get away from the Lord. Hey, permit the children to come to me. For such as these belong the kingdom of, of God. Remember that? He was approachable. He came into the world to reach and to save messy and lost sinners, brethren, people who had no hope. And he often got hammered for it. Remember what the religious leaders would would say? Why do you and your disciples eat with tax collectors and sinners? Remember that? Self-righteous hypocrites. And Jesus would answer them, It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I came to seek and to save the lost. If no one was lost, Jesus would have never come, right? He came to seek those filthy, messy sinners, including us, the worst of sinners. Messy people were His mission. Jesus loved people. Jesus was a people person. We need to be people people. We need to love people. I mean, can you imagine if Jesus would have had the same attitude that some of us often have toward people? Can you imagine if our Savior, brethren, was unapproachable and not available to us? None of us sitting in here today would have any hope. None. But he wasn't that way. He was the ultimate example of A people-oriented man. He had compassion for people. In a Christ-centered, word-driven, people-oriented culture where we strive to develop meaningful relationships, brethren, we also work hard at making sure that no one feels left out within sanctified parameters. I'm not talking about people who are in sin, who don't want to repent of their sin, right? And there is a sense in which we have to confront them and also give them some tough love. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about discriminating for wrong reasons. Being indifferent toward one another. Being unforgiving. Failing to reconcile. Holding past grudges. Being bitter and resentful toward one another. And never making the initiative as the Word of God commands you to do as a brother or sister in Christ to actually make that right and seek forgiveness or extend forgiveness from the heart. That's what I'm talking about. We need to fight for those relationships and be people, people, Be a church family where we cherish and treasure one another. It should also never be that new people come in amongst us, brethren, and we don't reach out. Right? That we just sort of stay in our seats. Right? We can even put your name under your chair already because that's always where you sit. That's always where you're at. You never move for an hour and a half, two hours on Sunday mornings. Don't be like that. Get up unless you have a physical disability. Get up. Reach out. There are new visitors coming in amongst us. Get to know who they are, right? We should not. I would rather have a church where people who are visiting walk away feeling uncomfortable. Man, those people were all over me, right? They were all over me. Multiple people came up to me. What in the world? These Jesus-loving people. I would rather have that than somebody walk. I was like, nobody ever talked to me. Nobody ever even looked at me. Nobody, nobody ever even welcomed me to here. We need to show the love of Christ, brethren. We need to be a people-oriented church as part of a discipleship culture. Fourth, fourth, if you're taking notes, and finally, a discipleship culture is a self-sacrificial culture. A discipleship culture is a self-sacrificial culture. Verse 29 reminds us of the sacrifice that is ministry. Ready for this? Look at verse 29. For this purpose, says Paul, for what purpose? For the purpose of presenting every person complete in Christ, right? From the previous context, for this purpose of presenting every man complete in Christ, for this purpose, note, I labor. Kapas, labor in the present tense by the way, meaning I continually become weary for this purpose. I'm continually spent, if you will. I continually strive to the point of exhaustion. That is the sense of what Paul says here. I spent my life doing this. Seeing people come to Christ and seeing people raised up and become more and more like Jesus. I am working hard, striving to the point of exhaustion. Is that what your ministry would be described like this morning? Or are you just taking it easy? Right? Busy about your life. Occupied with your pursuits. Serving no one. Or would this describe you, brother or sister? This is just an apostolic thing. Yes, Paul was unique in the calling of God upon his life, but these are principles for all of us to be fleshing out laboring striving to the point of exhaustion man ministry is exhilarating but listen to me it is hard work can i get amen hard work but my experience has been that the best things in life right are worth the hard work brethren the best things in life are and at the top of the list is the church of christ he died for her the church is worth your every effort and your self-sacrifice amen My experience has been that the best things in life are hard work. The most worthwhile things are not easy. No pain, no gain. Right? Like the great theologian Rocky Balboa used to say. Remember that? (laughs) No pain, no gain, baby. That's true, especially in the church. Ministry will be hard. Notice in verse 29, he piles on another word to emphasize the self-sacrifice of ministry to people, doesn't he? He says, striving. I labor, striving according to his power. Striving. The ESV puts it, struggling. The NIV puts it, I strenuously contend. Or I strenuously fight is the sense. It's the word agonizomai. I agonize. It was a word primarily used in athletic contexts. Isn't the present tense? Again, continual. Giving the sense of I continually compete or I continually contend or I continually fight. I continually agonize for the purpose of seeing people Christ formed in them. I agonize. God says, hey folks, you want to know something? Ministry is hard work. Ministry is messy work. Maybe you've heard the statement, right? The world is run by tired men. Have you ever heard that? The world is run by tired men or tired people. To some extent, that's true. There are a lot of people out in our world, lazy people who are living passively, living for many other things, and there are a few people who are doing all of the work in our society and in our country even, whether you agree with that work or you don't. And to some extent, that's true in the church too, but it shouldn't be that way. The more people we have in the church, the more servants should be enlisted so that the work will be spread across the board, right? But as Christians, we understand that we're working for a lasting, eternal kingdom, so it's absolutely worth it, brethren. I wouldn't be here if it wasn't worth it. Christ is worth it, and His people are worth it. Amen? Paul says ministry is hard work. This is the case for us who are pastor's elders. If you're in here and you're a pastor elder like me, beginning with me, 1 Timothy 3.1 says to pastor, pastor's elders, if any man aspires to the office of overseer, synonymous with pastor or elder, overseer, it is a fine, ready, what? Work he desires to do. It's a fine work he desires to do. It's hard work to lead in the church. Sheep bite. You know what I'm saying? But it's no different than what we do with our ultimate shepherd, Christ. We bite His hands all the time. It's not for the faint of heart to lead in the church. It's hard work to shepherd. It's hard work for you to serve in the church. But Jesus said in John chapter 9, and verse 4, that our time is limited, so we have to give all of ourselves for the work. He says we must work the works of Him as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. Christ had accomplished the work that His Father tasked Him to do, and we as His followers also, while there is still light, brethren, have work to do. We need to get to work, some of us. We need to get to work. I want to commend my brother. I'm not even going to say his name, but he knows who he is. Spent a whole day on Saturday, the Saturday, Friday, planning something out with his dear wife for our, our, our children's ministry. Loving on those kids and having parents drop off the kids. And for the whole day, they went and they had an excursion together, had a blast together. My special needs little girl had a blast herself with her mom. I want to commend that brother. Selfless, self-sacrificial, saying no to other things so he could say yes to people in the church, including little ones. They'll never forget it. You know who you are. And our, one of our pastors, Pastor Paul, Planning out a whole week of of camp for our kids. We need to be praying for this upcoming week. Self-sacrifice in the ministry. Where are you at, some of you? Where are you at? What are you doing to serve Christ's people? Working for God is is a good thing. But this requires self-sacrifice. A self-sacrificial attitude. It's the type of self-sacrificial attitude our Savior had while on earth, brethren. Remember Mark 10.45? Jesus said, For even the Son of Man, speaking of Himself, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Wow. Christ is the ultimate example of loving self-sacrifice. And He never calls us to do anything that He Himself didn't do Himself first. He was the trailblazer and the ultimate example of self-sacrificial service unto others. Amen? Christ. Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 7, Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthian church, "...but just as you abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge and in all earnestness and in the love we inspired in you, see that you abound in this gracious work also," he says to the Corinthians. Talking to them about, he wants them to, to be all the more generous in their giving of financial provision for those who are poor. And then he says, or he points to, to the ultimate example, 2 Corinthians 8.9 For you know of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor so that you through His poverty might become rich. I love that verse. Don't you? I love that verse. My precious Jesus. You hear that? Christ is the greatest example, brethren, of self-sacrificial service he left infinite riches above to enter humanity that through his poverty we might experience his spiritual riches boy that's convicting isn't it and some of us can't even serve in the church can't even meet a need i hear from people i'm I'm too busy you know i'm so busy and when i hear that over the years i ask busy doing what not with that kind of face typically it's a lot nicer than that Oh tell, me. oh, tell me about that. What are you busy doing? What are you busy doing? There's a good busy, and then there's a bad busy, isn't there? The bad busy is running around doing any, everything but the kingdom of, of things for the kingdom of God. But then there's a good busy. When you're busy about the Lord's work, that could be a good busy. You can say that, you know, I'm busy about the Lord's work. And don't just say that, mean it. Make sure that that's what you're fleshing out in your life. The Christian life is not just about rest, brethren. The Christian life is not just about resting in Christ. The Christian life is also about running for Christ, yes? Some people say, is it about resting in Jesus or running for Jesus? Both, both. Rest in Christ. And that should catapult you to running toward Christ. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Yes, let us run the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of God. Run the race, looking at Jesus, resting Jesus, run for Christ. Both. Both. We ought to be doing both. In a thriving discipleship culture, then we are to lay down our lives for one another. Go with me to Second Corinthians chapter five. Go with me there. Great passage for us to look at. Second Corinthians chapter five. What motivates this type of self sacrifice in our lives? Second Corinthians chapter five verse fourteen tells us Ready? For the love of Christ controls us. Or the love of Christ compels us. Having concluded this, that one, namely Christ, died for all, therefore all died. There's the greatest expression of love, isn't there? Jesus Himself said, greater love has no one than this, that one laid down His life for His friends. Well, Jesus did that. He laid down His life for us. But why did He do it also? Notice, it says that He died for all so that, there's your purpose clause, right? So that, They who live, those who have trusted in Christ, who are spiritually alive, namely us who have been raised from spiritual death, so that they who live, ready, might no longer live for themselves, but for Him, namely Christ, who died and rose again on their behalf. Boy, that's a convicting text, isn't it? You see that? Jesus gave His life for you, and thus, brother, sister, you owe Him everything. Everything. Salvation is free on the one hand in the sense that we cannot bring any works to the foot of the cross and say, Lord, I'm worthy. No extent of religiosity or works or anything that you do or church going or giving of money or whatever can gain you justification before God. It's by faith in Jesus alone. Salvation is free. It's by grace, unmerited, undeserved favor found in Jesus Christ alone. But it will cost you everything. It will cost you everything in the sense that now you die to yourself. You don't own yourself. In fact, you never did. You just live that way. But some of us, even as believers, live as if we own ourselves and we get to dictate what life needs to be about. No, 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 no. Jesus is Lord. He is boss. You follow after Him and you follow His Word and what His priorities are for you, which are Kingdom priorities. Amen? Christ is our life, brethren. This is why Paul says in Romans chapter twelve and verse one that you are to now live as a living sacrifice. And he says, "Why? This is your." He says, "This is your your reasonable service. It's reasonable, it's logical." Paul says that you are to be a living sacrifice in the light of what Christ has done for you. It's reasonable, it's what's expected. It's logical. Everybody knows that. Campus Hernandez paraphrase. Everybody knows that. Somebody gives his life for you, you you live for the rest of your life looking to thank that person out of of a heart of gratitude and love for them, right? For what they've done for you. Romans chapter 14 and verse 7 says, For not one of us lives for himself, and not one of us dies for himself, For if we live, we live for the Lord. Or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, ready? We are the Lord's. Romans chapter 14, verses 7 and 8. People who know this are self-sacrificial people. I'll never forget a conference we did, a group of us in Guatemala City many years ago. A bunch of Leaders gathered for a time of equipping. I think the conference was on the gospel, on the doctrines of the gospel for a network of churches. We had a wonderful time. Sweet fellowship, great food. Guatemala's got some of the best coffee. You don't even have to put creamer in that thing. You know what I'm saying? Some of the best coffee. And during one of those breaks, I remember exiting through the back to visit the the restroom. It's toward the back of the church. And as I was heading there, I could hear the sound of pots and pans from a distance. And so I made my way over to where the noise was. And you wouldn't believe it. There was this little old woman, probably in her 80s, pushing 90, on her hands and knees with her little skirt and her little blouse, washing dishes by this little creek over in this corner of the, the yard. Washing dishes. And I came over to introduce myself and just to say thank you. Thank you, sister, for your labors. And I'll never forget her answer. She said, Es lo menos que puedo hacer por mi salvador. It's the least that I can do for my Savior, with a huge smile, she said. That's the heart, isn't it? That's the heart, brethren. How humbling. No public ministry, no dog and pony show, right? Behind the scenes, no credit, right? She wasn't looking for people to point in her direction. That was a huge lesson for a young pastor from this spiritual giant, brethren. Spiritual giant. It humbled me. And it reminded me of the fact that ministry is, a, is not a right, it's a privilege. Ministry is a blessing. We don't deserve it. You don't deserve ministry. Ministry. Whether on the pastoral level, on the elder level, on the ministry leader level, deacons in the future, lay people, you don't deserve this ministry. Jesus has called you and invited you to be a part of His work. What a privilege, brethren. What a privilege. What a lesson. Love and gratitude drive or fuel our self-sacrificial service. You know what else fuels our self-sacrificial service? God's immeasurable grace and power. Look at the end of verse 29. For this purpose... Also, I labor, he says, striving, ready for this, according to his power, which mightily works within me. What a statement. This is coming from the mightiest of men from a human perspective that none of us will ever meet except in heaven someday, right? Right? The mighty Apostle Paul, evangelizer of people, trainer and equipper, church planter, soul winner, missionary, on and on the list goes prolific writer, and he says it's ultimately not about me, it's God working through me. It's not about me. Brethren, this is what ultimately ministry is. It's God working through us. By the way, marriage is God working through you. Parenting is God through you service and self-sacrifice in the church is God working through you you working in a difficult work environment is God working through you put that in perspective we are to be God dependent people Paul says ministry is hard work but God is sufficient where I am weak his grace and his power are sufficient Jesus is enough Jesus is enough for the work And so what does it look like to foster and cultivate a discipleship atmosphere where Christians can spiritually flourish and thrive and not just survive, brethren? It is a church where Christ is central. It's a church where the Word of God drives everything that we do. We're always asking, what does Jesus say in His Word? What does Christ want us to do in this situation? Not other people's opinions, not psychology, not secular ideologies, not even people's opinions. What does Jesus want us to do in His Word? That's a Word-driven discipleship culture. It's a place where we are oriented toward one another, seeking to know one another on a deep level, seeking to help one another plug in and assimilate into the life of the church. That's what small groups is all about. It's a culture where we, like our Savior brethren, are willing to lay down our lives for others, giving ourselves for the good of others. This type of discipleship ministry, listen to me, exalts Christ, makes much of Christ. Amen? And That's what we want to be about as a local body. I hope and pray that that is your, your heart, personally, as families, and collectively as a church. Amen? Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for the words of Christ. In Matthew sixteen eighteen. I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Lord, we know that the church is the one entity here in your creation that will succeed. The one entity that Jesus promised would not be defeated. And so Lord, as we remember these truths, help us to be people who are committed to fostering a spiritual atmosphere, a spiritual culture where we and others can thrive and where we use our gifts in the power of Your Spirit for Your glory and the edification of our brethren. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.